Good morning, everyone. It's good to have my voice back. Good to be here with you. A couple personal notes. Uh, today, uh, well, actually last week, would have been the 10th anniversary of my first sermon here. And um, uh, I can still remember Susie and I, and I told maybe the congregation, but several of you, that as we were driving here, uh, the emotions that we were having after coming out of a difficult, difficult church and a separation of wondering what we were doing driving down Northline Road, coming here, and... Um, and I just wanted to let you know that as I read Paul's letters and his prayers, uh, that Hope Church has been, I would say, the only church that I've had great affection for in, in my entire ministry. Uh, I've loved lots of people in other churches, but there is a great affection that I have for Hope and it's, uh, it's been great to be a part of this place and to recommend others to come here. And I've built lots of relationships with many of you and uh, desire, as long as the Lord keeps me here, to really cultivate even closer relationships with many of you. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that up. I'm uh, uh, also uh, thinking about these gentlemen that we lost uh, with the PCA this week. Uh, I had longed to meet Stephen Smallman, who Norm had built an acquaintance with, uh, and was hoping before COVID to have him come here and to be able to uh, do a, a, a presentation and a sermon for us some weekend uh, and then he couldn't come because he had surgery, I think, on his foot, right, Norm, at that time? Uh, and Norm had been in contact with him in November. Uh, and uh, so I feel badly about that. I, I have a Tim Keller story, is that uh, I was at Westminster Seminary when he was uh, a professor there of practical theology. And uh, I was, uh, I received notification that I was getting a scholarship uh, for free tuition to go to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and life was difficult at Westminster for me and my family, and it was a, it was a very rigorous year of academics and life there. And so I knew that uh, Tim had gone to and graduated from Gordon-Conwell, and so I, I asked him to have lunch with me, and we had lunch together. And because I just wanted to pray with him about uh, the direction I should go and wondered about Gordon-Conwell because Westminster stands for a uh, distinct reformed perspective and Gordon-Conwell had had many people there. I was going there because of Meredith Klein and, and David Wells and, and then coming to find out I did not know the the teacher that Greg Beale was going to be, or nor did I realize that I would have built a relationship with him, uh, that he spoke at my, at my ordination. But 
Uh, I sat with uh, Tim Keller and we were having lunch and I just was concerned about going to Gordon Conwell and he, he advised me not to be alarmed and, and uh, that he felt that with the people that were, that were there that I would continue to get the, con- the uh, uh, education that, that I wanted to. Uh, I was very much in discipleship and, and, and very much involved in evangelism and uh, I told him I was a bit nervous about going even though I felt the call to go to uh, uh, New England. I've always had a heart for New England, and so uh, he, he uh, confirmed that uh, in, in prayer with me, but then he shared with me, and ni- it was 1988 when he told me that uh, they were just, his family had just made a decision that they were going to move to Manhattan, and he said, and I'm nervous, he said. He says, I'm nervous about going because I could fall flat on my face, he said, in opening an Orthodox Reformed church in Manhattan. Like, that's got a chance of, of succeeding, he said, uh, because he was looking for someone else, I believe, to start the church, and everybody told him he should be it. So we shared our concerns and our, our fears together in prayer, and um, of course, the rest, you know the rest of the story, as, as uh, has been said. And um, also, the Lord used me to lead many people to Christ in New England uh, during my time there. So it's, um, uh, it's always been something that I've, I've had uh, in my heart of being able to share uh, with Tim and be able to have him share with me his fears of moving to Manhattan, taking his family out of, out of a safe area, being in, in, in Glenside and being at Westminster and, and then moving into this warfare of, of Manhattan and to, to see how God used him in, in such a profound way uh, has always been a, a good memory for me. So let's turn our attentions now to the book of Romans. Uh, I had wished by this time when we were opening up Romans 8 that I would have had an opportunity for three messages, but sadly I'm only going to be able to give one, uh, and then I will pick up again, I think at the end of July, uh, for three messages there, barring any uh, infection or inflammation in my voice box. Um, so turn with me, and I would suggest that, we, that everybody would turn their attentions uh, to the, the, the Bible that you brought with you or the one in front of you on page 944 uh, because it's so important uh, to be able to look at these words. And let me pray as uh, we read. Heavenly Father, I, I ask your blessing upon this time, ask your blessing upon the opening of your word, the the teaching of your word, the reading of your word, that, Lord, we realize that these have, are the words that you have breathed out for us, and that these are the words that, are, are, uh, that lead us to you uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we, we know that the Spirit speaks to us when we read the Scriptures. Uh, we all know that we are hearing from the same Spirit that we are not told by multiple spirits, but just one through the scriptures. And so we pray now as we read these familiar words, I pray that these are uh, endearing words, these four 
sentences will be, uh, again, reminders of your love for us, love that we do not deserve but have received, love that will be the the very stable words when we live our lives at the high peaks of life or we find ourselves at the lowest places of life. I pray, Father, that you would be with us now as we do this exercise of hearing you and reading from you and praying that your word would be applied to our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 but we're only going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 1 through 4. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind, but to set, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This is, I know Pastor Nate had mentioned it in one of his uh, emails throughout the week, that this, this chapter has been considered and is considered by many the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, I heard Derek Thomas say that he mentioned that in church and somebody came up to him and said, well, aren't you, aren't, aren't you, shouldn't you be cautious about the fact that you say that, about the inerrancy of the scripture and about the authority of the scripture and the entirety of the scripture? <laughs> and Derek told this person just to chill <laughs> and said, I'd rather have Romans 8 than Chronicles, he says. <laughs> this, is, this, is, uh, the, this chapter is one that I believe, as I've told you in the past, is really this, this crescendo 
of what we've been reading about in chapters 5, 6, 7, and now 8. It is really this, this peak of, of just this, the grace and the assurance that we need. I gave uh, a message to the men at First Press and to some men who, from Hope who were there from Psalm 77, which is a lament psalm. And, and there, there uh, it is, he talks about going to the Lord with our sorrows and with our sadness and with our defeats and with our brokenness and with our fears. But then he says, these are the things I will remember. I will cause myself to remember these things. And what it was God brought to his mind and he desired to think about these things, is that he remembered the, the redemption of the, the exodus from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. And it is through, this theme is through the entire Bible, the exodus. And for the, for the saints of the Old Testament, going back to the exodus of the glory of God, the power of God, the beauty of God, the mercy of God, the long-suffering of God, the pursuing steadfast love of God is epitomized in the Exodus story. And for us, as we go through the book of Lamentations and we think about that and we go back in the very core, the very center of the book of Lamentations is chapter 3 where we, where we read, and this I will remember the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And for those who are suffering, and even those who are high on a mountaintop of life, need something to keep them focused. And this is what this chapter, or 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about. And we come to this point now where after... Paul taking us through the argument of chapter 4 of saying that Abraham was not justified by being obedient. He was justified because he believed, because he had faith in God to justify him. So David, so, so he talks about Abraham and he talks about David, two high big icons of faith for a Jew, and he goes right to them and saying, justification by faith is not new. This is how it's always been done. So for him talking about justification by faith and saying that all the works of the law can't do what you think Jews or people who are religious, people who can, were thinking about pleasing God by their works, and Paul was addressing Jews and Gentiles in this book, but speaking to them directly, realizing that they, just because their pedigree is of Judaism, that that doesn't make them any greater with God than anyone else. And so he brings Abraham and David into the picture. And then he goes into chapter 5, and he brings them, uh, it's really chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, if we look at those in verse, uh, really verse 17, this is really the core. These are the core verses around 
we're going that we've that are really the basis of five, six, seven, and eight are are based upon. This is the foundation. And he says in verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He's bringing up two men, right? The first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam bringing a life of death and a life of condemnation. And when I remember reading that, this is when I started taking sides and, and going to one side of the pulpit of the other. And here we are all. We are all representatives. We are all sons of Adam. And everything Adam got and everything Adam did, we are, are uh, accounted for as well, as well. We are credited as well. So what Adam's life brought is what the world that we live in. And so as he says here, that he says we, we uh, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. So we are in two categories. We are either in Adam and we are all in Adam. It isn't a choice. We are in Adam. The choice comes. Does God give us the faith? Do we hear the scriptures? Do we hear the Savior? Do we hear Paul telling us that there is a choice? And here is the choice. And his name is Jesus. And this is what he's done for you. Because if you are in Adam, he says, you cannot. You cannot, will not be able ever to please God. And your life is going to be a life of death, not a life of, 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 uh, of seeing God, of knowing God. A life that you will be constantly working and grinding at and realizing that there is never any hope within you unless you believe that you're better than everybody else. And the standard that you use in your life will be the standard that God uses at the end of your life. And so he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act in Christ by his obedience that many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. And this is the argument we've been seeing all the way through in chapter 6 and 7 of talking about that the, tresp the, uh, the law was given to show the holiness of God. The law was given to show us our need for forgiveness and showing us our sinfulness. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 7, that what happens is that when we are faced with the law, we find out how condemned we really are and how sinful we really are. And so Paul keeps on presenting the law and just tells them, if you hold yourself to the law, realize that what this law is going to do is induce you and even, even uh, warrant you to keep on sinning and it entices us to sin. Paul says, I didn't know what sin was. And then all of a sudden the law came into my life and then I knew I was dead. So he says in verse 20 of chapter 5, now the law came to increase the trespass. 
But where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on in, in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin though grace may abound? And he says, oh, by, by no means, how could anyone say that if they know the law and then they've no sin, that how could anyone who says that they are a follower of Christ think that we can continue in sin? And so he says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. So he goes on and talks about now that we've been given a new name. If we are in Christ, we are no longer sons of Adam. We are now followers of Christ. We've been given a new name. And that's what baptism is. It's a, a naming, right? Go, therefore, go to all through all the world, baptize them in the name of. It is giving a new name. We are now no longer sons of Adam. We are now followers of Jesus Christ. And he goes off and he says, the old self has been crucified in Christ. That, new, that kingdom, that world that we lived in, before we came to know Christ, was the world of Adam. And it was a world of vanity and a world of futility. And so he says in verse, chapter 6, he says, that uh, chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse 15, he says, what then? Are we to keep on sinning because we are not under law but under grace? And he goes, again, that's an impossible statement for anyone who knows Christ. How could anyone say that? Do you know that you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? So here we are slaves. Over here in Christ, we become servants. Here it is not a willing thing to do. Here we are, in, we are pressed. We have no choice but to serve. To serve our very own hearts and our, only, only our own flesh. And then he goes on, and this is where we left off in chapter 7. And chapter 7 is about being bound to another. And remember what he says here, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released. We are free in Christ, being dying in Christ, we are now no longer held to Adam, but now we may marry someone new and be married to Christ. Verse 2, for the married woman is bound to her husband, but is released from the law of marriage. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now, being released, he says, 
having died to that which held us captive so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then he goes on in verses 7 through 12, and he talks about knowing sin. He says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the law commandment, when the, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. But he is saying the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. To understand who we are and as we stand before a holy God and it says do not judge us so you be judged by using the same measure on yourselves. And how do we judge our lives? Do we judge our lives by our performances? Do we judge our lives by our relationship to the church or our role in the church or our years in the church? Does any of that mean anything to God? And the answer is absolutely not because if it does, you and I know that there are times when it means nothing to us. When we find ourselves in a church and then we, we no longer are part of a church, or we find ourselves feeling great with God and all of a sudden we don't feel great with God, and then some days we look at ourselves in a mirror and realize that I don't know, I wonder about myself. And that's where he, I believe, he goes in the rest of the chapter uh, 7 from 13 to 25, and there are those two camps, right? The two camps I've mentioned uh, last time, and briefly, one is that this is the life of the ongoing Christian who struggles with besetting sin, who struggles not with the old nature because we've, that's, that person has been killed. That person is dead. We've died with Christ. We, who used to be over here, he says, you, you have now died with Christ, meaning that that old person no longer lives. We are dead, but now alive in Christ. But this kingdom that we lived in over here, the rule and the reign of the law in our life, mandating that we be perfect, no longer has tyranny in our life. We now over here realize that the one we are now married to married to, is now the one who has lived life perfectly and has lived obediently and is now our representative of obedience to the Father. So now when God looks upon us, he does not see us in Adam. He now sees us in Jesus. We are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so what we, we, but we still struggle with that ongoing sin, and I don't deny that at all. You and I know that we struggle. We struggle with, our, with that lifestyle that we had and the mentality that we had, and sometimes our rationalization. By living in this world, we do bring it over here. 
And our passions are still a part of us. Our desires are still very much a part of us. But we don't live in this world anymore. We now live in this world, which was okay over here, is no longer okay here. Because logically speaking, we cannot live the same way if we are followers of Christ. But yet we struggle. And so here we, we see this story, right, where he says, verse, and, and he goes, no, uh, in verse 20, verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do it right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so many... Orthodox, great scholars, commentators, pastors believe that this is the ongoing life of a Christian. And I say, I don't, I don't discount that one bit. I know, what it like, I know what it's like for you and me to live our lives, to follow Christ, and know that we can be discouraged as all get out because we do not live and look and talk and think like Jesus but though it is our desire to do that. We didn't even have that desire over here. We now have that desire because he says, remember in chapter 7, he says, but now we've been released from the law, verse 6, having died to that which held us captive over here, so now we can serve, not be slaves, but serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we now live a life by the Spirit. And this is what chapter 8 is going to be all about. Chapter 8 is going to unfold what it means to, have be with, be to walk a life in the Spirit and why do we do it. Or I believe later on in my life and other now Reformed Presbyterian uh, pastors and scholars are writing and I believe that this is not the story that Paul is giving us about what it is to struggle with sin in our life as Christian, which I do believe other scriptures teach us that for sure. But I do believe what he is saying here is that this is the cry and this is the experience of a religious Jew or a Pharisaical Jew like Paul who identifies himself to be that representative and realizing that when he comes to the end of his life and he comes to the end of his life, not physically, but the end of looking at his life and realizing that him trying to obey the law is pure vanity. And he is not able. There is no way that he is going to please God enough. And there is no way that he is going to be perfect and holy like God in this life because he cannot. And so what he sees is as he holds up this holiness of God, he realizes that it is all falling apart and his life is not as good as he thought or is not as holy as he thought or he is not as righteous as he thought. And so he falls apart and he cries out. He says, but wretched man that I am, who 
Who will deliver me from this body of sin? Now, in the other case where it is a Christian, this cry, as he says here, thanks be to God, is the Christian realizing that someday when the Lord returns, the battle that we have in our hearts will be done. Sin will be done away with because we will be having a new heart and a new body and we will no longer struggle with sin. And praise God for that day. But I believe, like others believe, that when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then now myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What he is saying is that now he understands that there is hope, that he does no longer needs to wait for the glorification of God's promise for us a new body and a new heart a completely give a new heart. We have a new heart and a new mind now, but we still struggle with it. It's, it's not there yet. But that what he believes now is that the problem of his sin has been taken care of. That the problem of sin, the problem of his working, the problem of his salvation, does he need to fear that someday God will look upon him when he is struggling with sin and realize and saying, oh, you're not perfect. You're not holy enough to get into heaven. Has anyone, do, and does anyone believe here that you can lose your salvation? There may be. Because I believed it. Because my pastor told me that I could. My pastor believed. He loved me, and I totally believed that he loved Susie and I, and he was a dear, sweet servant of the Lord, but his theology was terrible. And when I started studying, and when I started going to Bible college, and then I started being reformed, and he was not he thought that Reformed theology came from hell. And he told me and he told the congregation that the warnings in the Bible were be careful and remember your confession of your faith and watch out that the God, when the Lord returns, he finds you faithful. Because there may be a time if the Lord returns and he finds you disobedient that your salvation is gone. Well, I'll tell you, what a schizophrenic life that is. Or to be told that people weren't coming to Christ because I wasn't doing a very good job or I wasn't faithful enough. It's a terrible thing to be told that you can lose your salvation. That's why I think in these four verses that we hear, he goes that this is a cry of, of just the assurance of our salvation. Even though God said, Jesus says, I give eternal life in, in John chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I give eternal life and they will never perish. No one will be snatched out of my hand. My pastor told me, that may be the case, but because of my free will, I can jump out of his hand. And I believed him, right? 
who am I? I was very, Susie and I were so young in our faith, we had no idea what was going on. We just were like, wow. How do we know when we wake up some days? How do you feel like you're a Christian every day? Some days I don't. Or we read from John's Gospel in chapter 17, verse 12, And while I was with them, Jesus says, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, Father, in verse 11, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. This is the high priestly prayer of Christ in chapter 17 of the book of John. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And he says, I've not lost any that you've given me. Does that not carry weight in our faith? Or chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus says, this was to fulfill the word that he has spoken of those whom he you gave me, I have not lost one. Or Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, verse 6, where he says, He who began a work in us will see us to the end. These were words of, of joy when you read these and says in verse 1, Therefore, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's been laying out the entire time, showing us in the beginning, he says in chapter 1, he goes, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul knew that in his very heart. He couldn't wait to share that with the Roman church. He knew that they were justified by their, the object of their faith, not their faith, but the object of their faith. Because my faith doesn't save me, but the object of my faith does, and it's Jesus. And so he was saying, this is, let me show you. I can't wait to tell you, but let me show you something. Let me show you how miserably depraved you are. Let me show you how dark your soul is. So then when you understand how dark you are, when you hear the gospel, it will be radiant as if a jeweler takes a stone and puts it on a black cloth with beautiful lights so it glows. And this is what Paul's been doing in the book of Romans. He did it in the very beginning. And then he says, at that great passage of chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. And so this is what he's now saying, whether it's a Christian who's struggling with their sin and can't wait, like you and I, can't wait for the Lord to return, Nothing on your calendar, nothing on my calendar, worth any importance. I hope that you're not holding up Jesus coming for that vacation. Nothing on earth should be, we've been, else we wanting than Jesus to return. So we get rid of this mess. So I won't have to worry about my back pain or my losing my voice 
or people dying of car accidents or people dying of cancer. The very first word of chapter 8, verse 1, is not this, is therefore now. The word is no. That's the first word in Greek. No. It's not just one word. It's words put together because they want an exclamation point after it. No, therefore, condemnation. You and I will never be pronounced to be sinners again. As Pastor Nate says, to be declared, to be pronounced sinless and white and spotless is something that you and I cannot wrap our hands around, nor do we ever deserve. And that's the word we have to tell the world, that we're not perfect, but somebody was, and he is, and he's alive, and he's married to me. Boy, what a conversation that would be. Lots of ears would want to hear that one. We are the bride of Christ. He died for us. He died. He gave his life for us. No condemnation. Not now. Not ever. No matter what sin, folks. No matter if you ever go back to your high school days. Do you ever go back to the times when you weren't a believer and you wonder and you're just saying, Wow, was I really sorry for all that? Did I really, did God really forgive me for hurting that person that badly or cheating on exams that badly or stealing whatever? Did God really say that it is all gone? It is all forgiven? This is what Paul writes no condemnation. You will never have to hear the word guilty again. Though we live in this world, and though you and I struggle with sin, it is forgiven. We will never have to face our sins again. And so that's why he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, no pronouncement, no pronouncement of condemnation, no sentence, and no execution. That's what's so important. So whether you're coming from the struggle of sin as a Christian, or if Paul is talking about the, 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 the spiritual man, the Pharisee, the, the rabbi, the, the teacher that he was, kind of metaphorically speaking, representing those who would be like him and who were lovers of the law and who did care about the, the, the grace of God and who did care about doing holiness in his life, but realized that none of it he was doing was worth anything. The cry of that, praise God, thank God through Jesus, that's what I think he means of this exclamation point after the no. No, therefore, condemnation for those who are in Christ, into Christ, not only about Christ, but the word is into. It is physically, it is spiritually, it is our entire life, all of our juices, all of our thoughts are captivated by Christ now. We were doing things over here that we could give a rip. 
about God or about holiness or about goodness. If you and I didn't get caught, who's to blame? Who gets hurt? But now we live before a gracious God and a grateful God, and I mean a, a gracious and a holy God who sees what we do in the dark and who knows our hearts makes all the difference. And this is why this, this cry. So he says, therefore, there's no condemnation. Verse 2, why? What's the evidence? How does Paul know this? The evidence is it's not because the spirit of life has set me free. The reason is, is because we are now in Christ. We are located in him. He is now the very world we live in. That's the difference from Adam into Christ. This Adam was a man of the dirt, a man of, of, the, of nature, a natural man. This is, we've read in the prologue, this is God. And he has desired to give his life. And the evidence for this is what verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free. In Christ, from the law of sin and death, the controlling principle, that's why he uses the word law here, the controlling principle of life, how we live our life is now in this Holy Spirit. We've been set free from the dungeons of the captivity of being perfect. And we are now trusting in the perfection of Christ and his death on a cross. So the last few couple verses here, I want you to see the reason why this all took place for God. For God has done. It was God who did it, not you, not me. For God so loved the world. I want to read that all the way through. <clears throat> Chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, only son. Creeds say the only begotten son. The one son. We are sons of God, but we are not God. We are not eternally generated from God. We are not images of God. We, are, we, have the, we bear the image of God and the characteristics of, of, the, of, uh, of God he gives us for our, you know, our, our creativity and how we think and how we are moral. But we, do not, we are not God's children by, by being generated from, from God himself. Only Jesus is the only son. We are adopted. He, is, he comes from the very essence of who he is. He's co-equal. He's co-eternal. He's the only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Condemnation comes, but he brings salvation first. Condemnation will come later. But he says, but in, he says, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is already condemned. Because how they live their life, it is obvious. Who do they serve? If we were with Adam, we can't help ourselves. Our will is not free. Our will sits right next to our heart, and our hearts have passions and desires. And our will is only as free as our heart will let us be. So your greatest desire is going to influence your will in everyday life. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Everyone who hates, who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light lest he works should be exposed. But, whatever, but whoever does what is right comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And that's what he is saying here. The evidence, the evidence of you and I now being freed, the evidence of you and, now, you and I now no longer are sons of Adam, but are children of the living God, is because the law of the Spirit has set you free. We now no longer desire to be married to this. We no longer are held to this husband, but we now have a new king and a new savior. And we live in a whole new kingdom. We still live in this kingdom. We live with this kingdom mentality. This kingdom life, as Dr. Ferguson's book goes, kingdom life in a fallen world. But this is the law. This is the principle now. We live to glorify Jesus. We live to be transformed into the image of Christ. Over here, we live in darkness. We live in death. We live with hard hearts. We are blind. We are cold. And verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy. The law is good. But the law was never meant to change your behavior and my behavior, or your heart and my heart. As I've always said, the sign out there in the street may tell me to go 45, but my heart says, I want to go faster. I'm late. I need to get somewhere, God. So my ankle bone, which is not yet totally sanctified, steps on it. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. I'm late. The law is good, but it is weakened because our flesh cannot follow it. That's what he is saying. It could not do it. It can't do it. He gave it to us not to save us, but to point us to his holiness and our depravity. By sending his own son, again, right? His own son, that's Jesus, in his likeness of sinful flesh. So what we're seeing here is, 
if, if, if he's saying God has sent his son, he must be talking about God the Father. So we see now in these, less, these verses, two verses, the remaining point of, of the Trinity. We're saying that God the Father is the one who planned all of this. He was the one who planned our salvation and who sent Jesus into the world. That's the plan. And by sending his own son, not in sinful flesh, because Jesus, he who had no sin, became sin. Jesus was never a sinner. Jesus' flesh was not sinful. But he took on human form, as Philippians 2 says. By sending his own son in the likeness of God. And that's important to realize, he took on human form the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, or if you look in the footnotes, it's as a sin offering. He contend, condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning that Jesus was real. His death was real. He bled real blood. He ate real food. He was a human being, yet sinless. We don't have two natures. We have one nature. The old nature that used to be over here is dead. We now have a new nature. We don't have two. We don't have the old man trying to get in because somebody locked him up dead in a box. He's no longer alive. Jesus now lives within us. This is the life we now live. So we don't have two natures. There's not the old man wanting to get into life. The old nature... And the patterns of the old nature still struggle, we struggle with here. But it says here that, that it says the likeness of sinful flesh. We don't want you to think that Jesus didn't have a real body because that's some of the heresies of the church in the past. They believe that Jesus didn't die, his body was not real. So how could die, God die on the cross? Or in 1 John, remember, part of the thing is, is the, the spirit of the Antichrist was believing that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Because if he didn't come in the flesh, there is no condemning of sin. Now, there's no pronouncement against you and me, but there's pronouncement against the flesh, as he says here. For sin he condemned, I'm sorry, and he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, the purpose being the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the rest of chapter 8 is all about that. Life in the Spirit. What does it look like? It isn't that what saved us. It's what now we are justified by faith in the finished work of Christ, and because of the Holy Spirit, we see the, the, uh, the, the accomplishment of Christ on the cross turning God's wrath away, right? The expiation, the propitiation, those words I looked at a while back with you about God's wrath being turned away and our sin being washed away and our sins being taken far away from us, like the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. We no longer have to worry about that anymore, so we are now standing before the world and before Jesus and before God, sinless because of him. We are justified, completely at peace with God, and because of that, 
we are now given the Holy Spirit, and he now applies this new life to our life. We now live in a whole different walk. We don't walk according to the flesh. We now walk according to the Spirit. And that's what this chapter is all about. Because we can't wait to get to verses 8.28, right? Everybody knows that. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. And what's interesting about this is that the beginning of chapter 8 says there's no condemnation, and the end of chapter 8 says there's no separation. Because in Christ, nobody can, in Christ, we are secured. Let nobody make you feel, don't you ever feel, that your salvation, if it's based upon Christ, we are baptized to let the world know the sign and the seal of salvation in Christ. We eat and drink on, on the Lord's day of the Lord's Supper, proclaiming to the world not how special you and me are, but how great we proclaim the gospel to the world and to each other. So by you and me eating, it isn't about me looking, you looking at me. It is about me and you presenting to each other and edifying and supporting each other that we believe and we are unified in the gospel together. Because this has nothing to do about you and me. If it did, we would be like Isaiah. Oy vey, oy vey. I'm a man of unclean lips. What am I going to do? And this is what happened in chapter 7. You get to that point, you'll never have to cry like that again. We can long for the day that the Lord returns, and I pray for it often. But we never have to worry about our salvation ever being secure. Those of us, Tim Keller, I don't know if anybody read, I, I took it down. He wrote, he, he said a quote, which I thought was really good. He says here, he told his family on his deathbed, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. We are secure. Though Stephen Smallman, though Harry Reader, though... Uh, Tim Keller, are now with the Lord. They're happier than we are. But they're no more secure than we are. We are secure. We are safe in the hands of God. And no one can take you and me out. So no matter what your heart tells you, no matter what your head tells you, no matter what you're thinking, no matter what, if you have indigestion, if you have pain, if you have sickness, whatever, let nothing tell you that anything, as Paul's going to tell us at the end of Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you so much for these words of encouragement today. I pray that there's no one present today who feels that their salvation is not secure. I pray, Lord, that they do not struggle in their heart of hearts, wondering if they're truly saved. Though we may struggle from moment by moment, wondering if we truly believe 
this story about Jesus? Is it really true? Did a perfect man come from heaven and died for me as miserable I am? How my heart is so unholy. How I want my way. How I want my life to turn out the way that I want it. And complain about it and cry out about it. And know your word and still times prone to wander from you, Jesus. You really died for me? You have never, I'm never going to be lost. I'm never going to be insecure. I'm never going to be un, untethered from you ever in my life. And your word tells us there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we leave today with these words to be such an assurance in our heart and that we would willingly, lovingly desire to find someone that you want us to tell this about this week. Lord, make this something. Whether we feel we have the gift of evangelism or not, Lord, we are in love. And we are loved. And that's a story to tell someone. Thank you for the security of our salvation, Lord. Thank you that you've given us your spirit so that we are free. We are free from the law's demands. Though we delight in the law, we delight in your word. We delight in your statutes. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for who you are and what you have done for us and how you have given us new life. And Lord, as I said before, how you've given us affection for each other that we have not been born with. A love that covers a multitude of sins. Why? Because the love of the Father has sent you, Jesus, to us. And that's what motivates us. And that should run and be a very part of the blood of Hope Church, Lord. And I pray that you increase that that you will bring more people to come to know who you are, and that you will bring them here so that we can share the love with them, that the love you've given to us. This is our calling, Lord. This is why you've created us. This is why you've congregated us together. May this be our life's blood, and we ask it in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen.